Hi, this is Glenn Rawson. One of the most powerful ways to share history and heritage is by the telling of stories. We began sharing inspiring stories nearly 30 years ago. Each of those stories is true and was intended to inspire and strengthen faith. Over the years, those stories have reached millions around the world. This podcast is for you to listen, learn, and enjoy. Hello, my friends. Now, first story tonight. And again, as always, it is a pleasure to be with you. And uh, hopefully these devotionals will help someone and be a source of inspiration. So to begin with, you already know this, but even in the worst of circumstances, the Lord will sometimes do wonderful things. Tender mercies of miracles of love and kindness. And this story is the title story. Sunday, October the 5th, 1856, President Brigham Young stood up in general conference and called for the strictest attention. He then said, quote, I will now give this people the subject and the text for the elders who may speak today and during the conference. It is this. On the fifth day of October, 1856, many of our brethren and sisters are on the plains with handcarts and probably are now several hundred miles from this place, and they must be brought here. We must send assistance to them. The text will be to get them here. That is my religion. That is the dictation of the Holy Ghost that I possess. It is to save the people. I shall call upon the bishops this day. I shall not wait until tomorrow nor the next day for 60 good mule teams and 12 or 15 wagons. I will tell you, he concluded, that all your faith, religion, and all your profession of religion will never save one soul of you in the celestial kingdom of our God unless you carry out just such principles as I'm now teaching you. Go and bring in those people now on the plains and attend strictly to those things which we call temporal or temporal duties. Otherwise, your faith will be in vain, the preaching you've heard will be in vain to you, and you will sink to hell unless you attend to the things we tell you. End of quote. I love Brigham Young's approach. He once described it that his preaching was like raining pitchforks, tines down. Well, on the morning of October 7th, two days later, 50 men and 22 teams left Salt Lake headed east. Among them was James Barnett Cole. As they started over the mountains, it began to snow going up over Big Mountain. On the journey, searching for the Willie Company, James experienced a most unlikely dream. He related that dream to his friend and captain, William H. Kimball. He said, I dreamed that I saw a beautiful woman in this group. She was wearing a green veil and she was my wife. End of quote. Brother Kimball then said, Jimmy, you'll see no beautiful woman in this, in a green veil in this forlorn outfit. End of quote. Well, not long after that, just over South Pass, they were met by Captain James G. Willie and Joseph B. Elder, who reported the desperate plight of the Willie Handcart Company. The next morning, the rescue wagons were on their way over Rocky Ridge to meet the Willie Handcart Company. 
James Cole recalled, quote, that he saw the encampment just as the sun was sinking in the west. It looked like an Eskimo village, which was fully a mile away. The snow was very deep, and the paths had been made from tent to tent, which gave the camp that appearance. It was located on the plain near the river. Soon the people caught sight of the relief train. They threw off all restraints. They shouted. They cried. They freely embraced each other. And soon, their deliverers, end quote. Well, as the brethren of the rescue party rode into the camp of the saints, William H. Kimball happened to look down among them, and to his astonishment, he saw a beautiful young woman wearing a green veil tied over the top of a fur cap to protect her face from the severity of the wind and the bitter cold. Kimball turned to James Cole, and he said, Brother Cole, there's your dream girl. Well, James invited her to get into his wagon. It is reported that at first she would not. She did not know him. However, she must have relented because not long after that, she got into the wagon. And subsequently, the Willie Company Journal records this. November 2nd, 1856. James Cole of Fort Supply married Lucy Ward of the 4th Handcart Company at Fort Bridger. (laughs) William H. Kimball performed the ceremony. And for their honeymoon, the newlyweds met just two days before, spent the rest of the winter in isolation of Fort Supply, Wyoming, where James tended to Lucy's frozen feet and nursed her back to health. End of quote. Marvelous story. Under the worst of circumstances, even a pandemic, the Lord is always mindful of finding a way to bring us joy, peace, and tender mercies. Next story. And I'm not being a pessimist, but the world we live in, well, it's a wilderness. It's a spiritual wilderness, is it not? It's crazy out there. And if you likened it to the 1850s, Yeah, there's a lot of predators out there. There are predators on two legs these days rather than four, but it's still a dangerous world, especially for the children. They are the most at risk. Now, I know this is a tough question, but in this kind of a world, what kind of parents, grandparents, should we be? Here's a story that might be somewhat familiar. It's been mentioned in General Conference but I want to add some details to it that I found in the journals. July 1st, 1856, somewhere on the Overland Trail in Nebraska. About noon, as the Daniel D. MacArthur Handcart Company journeyed towards the west, six-year-old Arthur Parker was ill, running a fever. So he sat down to rest by the side of the trail, and as children are wont to do, quickly fell asleep in the tall grass. Well, the handcart company pushed right on by, unaware that he was there. That is, until the onslaught of a violent thunderstorm later that afternoon forced all the immigrants to stop and set up camp. Well, Arthur was then discovered missing, and a search was mounted that lasted all night. Meanwhile, 
Storm, thunder, and lightning raged fearfully all night, quote unquote. The immigrants lay all night in wet clothes until morning and awoke with water running under them in streams. That following morning, three men, including Captain MacArthur, went back and searched again for the lost child, but he was nowhere to be found. The company remained in camp for the day, waiting and drying out. The morning of the third day, July 3rd, 1856, the company had no choice. They moved on. Time was precious. Food was scarce. They had to go. Robert Parker determined that he would go back for his son. He wouldn't leave without him. And his wife, whom Robert had once described as, quote, the most beautiful girl in England, pinned a bright red shawl about his shoulders. If he found him dead, the journal says, he could use this to bury him. And if he was found alive, he could use the shawl to signal them, end of quote. Well, Robert turned to the east, and Anne and their three remaining children picked up the handcart and resumed their journey west. The camp moved an incredible and exhausting 25 miles that day. Throughout the day, Anne kept glancing over her shoulder to see if Robert was coming. As camp was made that night, Anne would climb the highest eminence and look off into the east for a sign. Consumed by worry, Anne could not sleep. The imagination would run rampant. The danger of wolves was real. Stories of immigrants devoured by wolves were known to all. And Indians, the threat from Indians was constant. What if Arthur had been taken by a local band of Indians? On July the 4th, the camp again moved forward. Another 22 miles, and once again, Anne passed the day vigilant and weary. July 5th, the company remained in camp. Then, Sunday morning, July the 6th, 1856, at 8.30 in the morning, Anne, looking east, saw in the rays of the rising sun the red shawl and recognized her husband's familiar gait. It is written, quote, The brave little mother sank in a pitiful heap in the sand, and for the first night in six nights she slept. End quote. One of the immigrants, Archer Walters, witnessed the boy's return, and he recorded, quote, Great joy throughout the camp. The mother's joy I cannot describe. End quote. What had happened to Arthur? Well, he had awakened and found himself alone on the side of the road. When the storms hit, he took shelter under a tree, spending the night in the open. The wolves surrounded him and howled, but did not harm him. The next morning, the lad walked nine miles to the home of a Dutchman, where Robert Parker later found him and the boy was saved. I've always loved that story because of righteously stubborn parents who won't give up. By the way, 
you probably already know this, but this same Robert Parker, well, he was the grandfather of Robert Leroy Parker, otherwise known as Butch Cassidy. Now, I hope you keep a journal, because it may be that someday in the future that the simplest thing you may say may cause a significant change in someone else's life, like this that happened to me. As part of my work early on while working on the Joseph Smith Papers and the History of the Saints television series, I was in the archives, church archives in Salt Lake, with my partner, Dennis Lyman. We were searching through and filming 19th century pioneer journals. While he was doing the filming, I was more or less just aimlessly thumbing through the diary of an English convert out of Nauvoo by the name of Thomas Bullock. Now, Bullock would later be a part of the Vanguard Company that came into the Salt Lake Valley first. But for the time I was reading, he was a part of that company of Latter-day Saints ruthlessly driven out of Nauvoo in September of 1846. They were without food, shelter, and provisions. He and others were forced across the Mississippi River and took up residence in a filthy slough. Bullock records in his journal firsthand the miracle of the quail that we've heard so much about. It was there in the poor camp, and Bullock wrote it down. Well, the poor camp, these saints driven out, had no means to travel and nowhere to go. Bullock himself had been, according to his journal, terribly ill with malaria. Rescuers finally came, sent by Brother Brigham, and loaded up many of those poor camp for their trip 71 days across Iowa to winter quarters and catch up with the main body of the saints. That's the background. Now, as they began that journey across the prairies of Iowa, I began to read in Bullock's journal, and I came to this entry, Friday, October 16th, 1846. Between two and three this morning, Sister Joan Campbell was delivered of a child which was dead. Immediately after delivery, she was seized with a chill, and in less than an hour, she was a corpse. When she was driven from Nauvoo, she was in perfect health. But living on the slough opposite and exposure brought on chills and then shakes, which has cut her thread of life. And then Bullock said, this is the effects of persecution by the Illinois mob, end of quote. Well, that entry really affected me. I kept reading. The next day I read in Bullock's journal that Joan Campbell was buried. And at the service afterwards, he wrote this. About three Sister Campbell was laid in the grave. I read a portion of the hymns and Father Bosley prayed. Thus have I seen the saints laid low in the wilderness, followed by one single mourner, having been banished from the land of their adoption by a brutal mob on account of her religion. 
end of quote. Now, I've read the stories of the saints' persecutions for decades. I've studied the concept, the doctrine of martyrs, witnesses for their faith. But it was never more real or meaningful until I read that story. These were real people, ordinary people like us. They were fathers, mothers, husbands, wives who lived, who loved, and who died tragically for their faith. I tell you, you know this, we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. But in many families, there are martyrs to the faith that some of us are not even aware of. Joan Campbell is one of them. Her and her baby, martyrs to the cause of Christ. And lastly, I end where I started. I am grateful to Thomas Bullock for writing that down. Otherwise, I'm not sure that Joan Campbell would even be remembered today or the details of her lonely, unknown grave even recalled. You know, you may consider it mundane in your time, but in the time of your posterity, it may be most, most meaningful what you wrote. And who's to say that someday in the future, someone may be quoting from your journal and establishing history. Next story. John Cooper. Now, I have talked a lot, and I do it every July. I love talking about the pioneers. It just fills my soul. We've talked a lot about their sacrifices how hard it was. And we know it was. But this story really puts a fine point on that. John Cooper was born in Leicestershire, England, the son of James and Anne North Cooper. When John was only two years old, his father was killed. John's mother was unable to care for him, so she sent him to live with a wealthy uncle, a bachelor, who provided much of the world's goods and a quality education to John. His uncle also insisted that John learn a trade, so John became a skilled cobbler, a shoemaker. John was described by those who knew him as, quote, a nice-looking man with brown eyes and dark, wavy hair. He stood five foot ten inches tall and weighed 160 to 170 pounds. He was very athletic and took part in all kinds of sports of his day. He was one of the fastest foot racers in England, end of quote. It is even said that he won a race and was presented to Queen Victoria. Well, one day, John and some of his mates stopped to hear some street preachers. John said the words of the preachers and the songs that they were singing kept ringing in his ears and he couldn't erase them from his mind. Well, you know the rest of the story. John joined the church, and in so doing, he was kicked out, turned out by his uncle, and disinherited. That's quite a, quite a sacrifice. From 1854 to 1856, John served as a missionary there in his native land. The details I don't know, but somewhere along the way there, he met Marianne Lewis, 
they were engaged to be married, but decided to wait until arriving in Zion to be sealed. Well, they came on to America, to Iowa City, and were assigned to travel with Ben Hodges Wagon Company in late 56. When winter snows came on the 19th of October, you know this, there were four companies stranded out in what would later be described as one of the worst winters in memory in Wyoming. Those companies, of course, were the Willie and Martin handcart companies and the Hodgett and Hunt wagon companies. It was decided by the leaders and rescuers that they would unload all of the personal goods in the wagons of the Hunt and Hodgett companies in order to load those wagons up with suffering saints who could no longer walk, those from the handcart companies. So the goods were offloaded and stored in Old Fort Seminole, which is right there near Devil's Gate in Wyoming. Then a meeting was called, presided over by Captain George D. Grant, and it was discussed, how would we protect these valuable goods that belong to the immigrants? Twenty men were asked to remain behind through the winter and guard those goods. Among those asked was John Cooper. The minutes of that meeting show that Captain Grant said to them, quote, It was a great trust reposed in those men appointed to remain, and he wanted them to guard and care for it more so than if it belonged to them individually. He wanted, get this, he wanted no half or chicken-hearted men to remain, but men with large souls, men of integrity, men of God who would not do a wrong thing, would not steal one from another. If any such were among them, he wanted them to be passed through the devil's gate, and he did not want any grumblers or fault finders. And then he concluded he believed the men remaining were good men and would not go to do anything wrong. In regards to their food and survival in the bitter winter, Captain Grant said, quote, that he anticipated they would have hard times, but they need have no fear of starving. Why? Because they could kill buffalo and antelope, end of quote. Well, just before Captain Grant pulled out, the man appointed to watch over the 20 to lead the 20 Daniel Webster Jones faced all of the 20 men and said, this is your last shot. If any of you want to go on with the company, speak now. Otherwise, we're here for the long haul. Well, now as to the food, that assessment proved overly optimistic on Captain Grant's part. Family records say that John, John Cooper, told his children many times how they night herded the cattle to keep the wolves from attacking them until the danger of the wolves attacking the men became too great. So they couldn't guard the cattle. The cattle became so poor and were dying so fast that the men guarding the goods killed the cattle to save them for food. One man among them was an expert butcher and he prepared the meat expecting to eat only the best and keep the rest for wolf bait. But the wolves didn't get any of the offal from the cattle. The men were obliged to eat every bit of it themselves, 
even the hides and the hoofs. They suffered with cold and hunger. They dug under the snow for onions and sagos. Their rawhides were scalded to take off the hair and cooked and eaten to keep off starvation. Continuing the quote, they were in a starving condition and many of them were very sick because of eating rawhides. John said that their constant prayer was that God would bless their stomachs and adapt them to the kind of food they were forced to eat. When help finally arrived, they had their saddle straps soaking, preparing to cook and eat them. The men were so thin, the men who stayed behind to guard those goods, they were so thin, they could hardly walk. Get this. John Cooper went into Fort Seminole on November 2nd, weighing about 160 pounds. He came out weighing 80. Moreover, John did not arrive in the valley until June 6th, 1857. Two days later, half the man he once was, he married Marianne in the endowment house. He had proven himself a man able to do hard things. And then, in so few words, but conveying so much, John later wrote, quote, We must not expect everything to run smooth. End of quote. Very wise counsel, indeed. Don't be a pessimist, but don't be surprised when things don't go the way you plan. All right, let's take a break for just a moment. If you're interested in one of these church history tours in 2022, contact funforlesstours.com and they can help you. That's what this tour is, is with Fun for Less. I also wanted, again, to let you know that the 2021 volume of stories, the next book that will be coming out, the one that has the year's collection of all the stories from 2020 to 2021, that book will be done and out soon. The VIPs will get it for free. And if any of the rest of you want to pick it up when it comes out, contact Glenn Ross and Stories and you can get a copy of it. It's all the stories that were sent out and the weekly emails for the last year. And speaking of that, my dear friends, even as of this morning and this afternoon, you're still sending me stories. And that is exciting. I just got one this afternoon. I don't even remember the dear sister's name of a miracle on Interstate 80. I can't wait to write it up and tell you about it. Really neat things happening to ordinary people like us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sending me your inspirational stories. You feed my soul. And again, if you haven't yet signed up, to be a free subscriber, to pick up these stories in a weekly email, I promise you, receiving those stories weekly, that's free. That's our gift to you. If you want to be a VIP, that's a different matter. But this weekly subscription to the free stories, you can have that. Just sign up or give it to a friend. Thank you for listening. Many of the stories you heard today have been published and are archived at glenrossonstories.com. We will be back again with another podcast next week.